everyone. Happy Valentine's Day slash Frederick Douglass Day in this Black History Month. I'm Joy Reid, coming to you live from sunny California, IA. And I'm Jason Johnson. So, Jason, we've got a lot of news to get to tonight, including a Dear John letter from a certain blue chip accountant to a certain orange person. But let's get started about last night when I guess California was ready for some football. No doubt. Another postseason game that came down to the final seconds. The Rams beating the Bengals after Matthew Stafford at MVP Cooper Cup connected late for a comeback win. All in front of a hometown crowd, which has only happened twice in Super Bowl history in this brand new stadium in Inglewood. Well, let's talk about that because we know that rappers, you know, they love to shout out Inglewood. Dr. Dre, Snoop Dogg, and Tupac all did it. You know, and I was just there and it feels like a West Coast Harlem in some parts. But really, it's a one-time black enclave that is more half black, half Latino these days. And it's a community in transition. A huge transition. We're taking, we're talking the Super Bowl spotlight, a new NFL franchise, and a $5 billion stadium. That's billion with a B. And speaking of spotlight, Snoop and Dr. Dre were in the house for an epic Gen X West Coast hip hop, very black halftime show. Sorry, millennials, you can't claim this one. And boy, did that not go over well with the right wingers. Sure did enjoy. You know, you had conservative activist Charlie Kirk tweeting, the NFL is now the league of sexual anarchy. This halftime show should should not be allowed on television. Okay, what does that even mean? And then you have Sean Spicer of short-lived White House and Dancing with the Stars infamy asking, what was the message of the halftime show? Does Sean Spicer even get to ask about messaging? I mean, come on. No, he doesn't. <laughs> but once again, the biggest Super Bowl moment wasn't even about a play or even about what was rapped about or sung. The big moment was rapper Eminem kneeling in an apparent tribute to Colin Kaepernick. The NFL was quick to say it was aware that he would kneel and did not try to stop him, despite reports saying the opposite. But OK, here's the thing. And especially for folks with PTSD about a certain Janet Jackson incident, the NFL has always tried to sanitize blackness, especially during the Super Bowl, from the halftime performances to players taking a knee. And it especially does not want to dabble in the culture wars right now and tick off its conservative fan base. Which explains why Kendrick Lamar's line, and we hate the popo, was noticeably scrubbed last night. Don't think we didn't notice. All right, let's bring in our panel. Joining us now is Bomani Jones, ESPN sports journalist and host of The Game Theory with Bamani Jones coming soon on HBO and Michael Harriet, columnist for the Grio and author of the very timely book Black AF History. Thank you all for being here on apparently it's called Black Center. Now. Black Center. Yeah, that's <laughs> that's the name that I dubbed. We, had a, little fun. we had a little fun with our, our sort of mashup of local news and uh, ESPN Bamani. So hopefully hopefully we did OK. But I want to get your impressions of everything that you saw last night. I, I was in Inglewood. I spent most of the day in Inglewood watched a Super Bowl watch party in the heart of Inglewood at the Miracle Theater. And the blackness of the whole experience was actually really big for me. Um, but it was very different in terms of what the NFL allowed to happen during that halftime show. I still think they were surprised by the moment by Eminem. But what do you think? I'm sure they were surprised by the moment, but there's a fundamental what you're going to do about it element to that, right? What are they going to do? Send somebody out there to tackle him before he kneels? Like, what, what room did they have to do anything once he decided to do it? The other thing you can't forget is that's a rich white man. You're not about to tell that rich white man that he can't do that. What, like, what you going to do? Hold up his check because Eminem is hurting for the money? In fact, the NFL, I don't even know if they get paid this year. Many years, they've been known to offer to not pay people. So, no, nah, that, that was there was nothing they could do. He knew there was nothing they could do. He was going to do whatever he wanted in that moment. Kendrick Lamar, not quite as white, not nearly as rich as him and Dr. Dre. You got to screw up your line. 
Yeah. All right, Jason, kick it off. Look, I got to be honest. Nobody noticed. I was in the room. I was around Bengals fans. When Eminem came out, and by the way, he did not get the loudest cheers. It was actually Mary J. Blige. Most people didn't notice that he was actually taking a knee. So I wasn't necessarily moved by it one way or another. It's that kind of performative change. If somebody had come out on stage and maybe like Colin Kaepernick had been dressed as one of the dancers and came out, (laughs) or if somebody said shout out to Brian Flores, then I would have thought that would have been a bigger impact. But at this point, taking a knee is not nearly as provocative as it was five years. Well, okay, um, let me let you be the deal breaker on this, uh, Michael Harriet, because so usually I wore my cap, I wore my arm with cap top because I have to be honest with you, I was a very big tomboy as a kid. I was a fanatical football fan, but I have to admit I fell out of love with the NFL. I fell out of love with the game because it, it just became very clear that this was a sport with a lot of black people in it, but not all black people with any power. No coaches, very few people allowed to get into that quarterback slot. And the coach thing really, it hurts my spirit and it's very difficult for me to love the game. So I think anything that these guys do that's disruptive, I am for it. They pay for that stage, Michael. Dr. Dre put the money up for that stage. They own that stage. They could have done whatever they wanted. Nobody was going to check them. Yeah, and the, the thing about it, though, is well, I didn't watch the uh, the this halftime show or the Super Bowl because, like you, like I just kind of don't care. I'm not boycotting it per se. I just right. stopped caring about the NFL. But one thing I will say, you know, having seen the clips on the, the screenshots online, is that I don't know what Eminem kneeling means, right? Like Colin Kaepernick knelt because. The NFL didn't want him to kneel during the anthem, like to Columbus kneeling and just to make it about kneeling and not the thing that the kneeling was about. Like it's it's meaningless to me. Right. It's like like, you know, walking across the Edmund Pettus Bridge in the middle of the night while nobody's looking. Right. It wasn't about walking across the bridge. It was about the thing that he was trying to accomplish. And so, like, he successfully got applause for doing something that meant nothing. And I think that's kind of like the epitome of what the NFL has become. Right. Like they they scrawl and racism in the end zone. But they will kick black people out of the league for talking about or pointing at the problems that racism gives America. Right. So I, th- I think like he did it, but it doesn't mean anything. It's too late now. Y'all are cold. Y'all, y'all are cold blooded. I, I gave him credit. So I'm the only one up here. I gave him credit. Y'all, y'all are cold blooded. I, 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 I'm inclined to give him credit. I mean, there's only yeah. been so much credit. I agree. Like it wasn't yeah, going to change the world. But I it guess wasn't going to change the world. Yeah. Yeah, but I guess we're saying though, in that circumstance, there's no demonstration that's going to change the world, right? So yeah, I don't, yeah. I, I don't, I don't know what what the player move would be for somebody to use that stage to do if we're using this yeah. as the metric that isn't actually doing anything or meaning anything. Yeah. No, I, and you're right. And and there was so much that the right was mad about, uh, Jason. They were also mad about Snoop uh, smoking weed, which, which is legal. Which is legal, and also. He is Snoop. Yeah, yeah. What do you what do you what do you expect him to do? It's legal in the state. They were mad about that. They were mad about something about the halftime show. This the Charlie Kirk thing. I don't understand. Maybe you understand it better than I do. He was upset about the show, but I'm really not sure why. This, this one guy tweeted. Uh, let me find this tweet about him. He basically said nobody. And then he said, basically, get off my lawn. Basically, his oh, there was nobody, not a living soul. This is Brooklyn dad. Nobody, not a living soul. Charlie Kirk, get off my lawn, you sexual anarchist whippersnappers. What was he? I don't understand what he was mad about. Was it the thighs on Mary J? What what was bothering? I think it was the thighs on Mary. Really, look, we remember Charlie Kirk how he responded to the WAP video. I mean, I think the moment that he saw Cardi B put her tongue out, I think Charlie Kirk just kind of lost it. I think he was he didn't know what to deal with himself. Maybe he was upset. Yeah, tingly feelings. He didn't understand them. Yeah, maybe he was mad that Fifty Cent did that P90X thing Mm -hmm. and then had. 
people dancing around him. I don't really know. I think it's interesting that conservatives wanted people like Ted Nugent there. Ted Nugent has verbally threatened Hillary Clinton. Ted Nugent has said all sorts of vulgar sexual things before. And but done the, vulgar sexual things with a child, with a young person. Uh, yes, he's been, yes, exactly. Allegedly. So it's allegedly. So here's the thing. It's fascinating to me that people want to turn this NFL game into this cultural touch point. I'll say this. As somebody who continues to watch football, and I have my Rams gear on, it's very painful. Everybody knows I'm, like, I'm a Rams hater. Mm-hmm. Um, you can find the small victories, right? For example, the Rams have probably the blackest coaching staff in the NFL. They got 21 coaches. 10 of them are African-American. You have Matt Stafford, who wrote about Black Lives Matter. You have Von Miller, who's talked about Black Lives Matter. They are a team that if you want to watch and not feel so guilty, you can kind of root for one way or another. And mm-hmm. that's something that I can understand people being happy about, even if they're disgusted with the game. I was happy with, the, with Inglewood, just as Inglewood itself, given all the issues about gentrification and everything else having to win. I was happy about that, even though I'm not a Rams fan either. But, Monty, I want to talk to you about this, uh, this Flores situation, because he's adding more cities now, to, uh, more, you know, in addition, more teams to this lawsuit. What do you think the outcome of this is going to be? Because, you know, I've heard people say everything from, well, he'll never coach again um, to maybe this makes some sort of systemic change to it won't have an effect. What do you think? Well, I mean, typically with these kinds of lawsuits is how close can you push this to discovery? Because once this gets to the point where people have to sit down for depositions, that's when the checkbook comes out. And that's when the decision becomes difficult about whether you're going to ride this out on principle or you're going to bring all of this out when they offer you tens, maybe hundreds, who knows how many millions of dollars in front of you. I think that he believes what he's doing. I think he's going to try to push it that far. And I would not be surprised if he carries it over. But I got to ask you why we're here on this. And you mentioned Charlie Kirk and Ted Nugent. Why we spend so much time talking about unimportant people with insincere intentions. Like the only people on that side of things that I really think had a problem with that halftime show, as you described, are people who make money by saying they have a problem with it. Like I went to school in a town in Texas with 1,500 people. I see what those people post about on Facebook, and I'm here to tell you, they was knocking that Dre and Snoop in the parking lot. They love that stuff, right? The people who are in the, in the business of saying they don't, whatever. They ain't put them on the halftime show for a small right. number of people. It's because quietly, everybody loves the G-Funk. This was a universal yeah. sort of thing. And Charlie Kirk only comes up in my life when people who say they don't agree with him talk about him <laughs> in places where we give him more attention than he deserves. We have to stop. <laughs> That is loving criticism and valid criticism because eventually my, my makeup artist was actually uh, in the stadium and was surrounded by almost no black people. It was mainly white people. And they were they were jamming to it. They enjoyed it like they were enjoying every second of it. So nobody actually in the room was mad. Um, I, I want to get to uh, sort of the bigger picture here with you, Michael, as well, because all of these, you know, whether it's the NBA, NFL, et cetera, have all now become so much blanketed in these overall arguments that we're happening about whether we can even talk about race in schools, whether everything is critical race theory. One of my favorite tweets about last night was asking if the halftime show was critical race theory, um, which I thought was hilarious. But I mean, we were having these conversations and sports has been caught up in it. What does that mean? Because sports has always been political. But I'm wondering what that means now. When people like you, people like me are walking away and not even watching anymore, what does it mean now? Well, I think, you know, what it means is that, first of all, you can't ignore the elephant in the room is that you're talking about companies that profit from black people's labor and talent. Right. So what we're talking about when we're talking about coaching is not like giving black coaches a chance. It is talking. We're talking about like elevating and promoting 
the black people who make your profit to a status where they get to where they're included in decision making. Right. So I don't I don't even like to couch it as like we're giving black co- giving black coaches a job. Black coach, black people, the 97, 70 percent of the NFL. And if you talk about 70 percent of a of any workforce and no, you're promoting no one. Right. It is it is intentional discrimination that can't be a logical answer you know and the fact that you know 33% of the coaches on rosters in the league are the relatives of coaches on rosters <coughs> in the league you know what i'm saying so so we can't just talk about this in a silo and yeah. when black people make up 70% of anything we have to talk about race right because black people talk about race because black people are marginalized so if you know if you want to strip the race part out of the NFL or the NBA or out of America in general what you're saying is you don't want to talk about the humanity of the people who you consider countrymen. And I think that is the important part that we have to remember. To that point, let's listen to uh, President Biden, because he did his NFL interview and he, he made a lot of those same points. Here he is. The whole idea that um, a league that is made up of so many athletes of color, as well as so diverse, that there's not enough African-American qualified coaches to quote to manage these NFL teams. It just seems to me that it's a standard that that they'd want to live up to. Bomani, your thoughts on that? Well, I mean, I was at a conference in 2003 where all the economists got together and there was a presentation about this when Johnny Cochran was thinking about suing the NFL and they ran a correlation matrix on coaches. And when there had only been five black coaches in the history of the NFL, they found that blackness was statistically significantly correlated with success when there were only five. That's crazy to do with a sample like that. The reason it happened, though, was you had to be so good at being a coach to be black to actually get a job. Then, of course, you were going to ultimately wind up being really good at it. What kills me about this or what's hilarious to me about it with the NFL is as Michael talks about those nepotism numbers. Nobody has ever demonstrated that coaches' relatives are actually any better at this job than anybody else, <laughs> right. right? Like, you can make yeah. an argument that they'd have a familiarity with it and so they could get in a lot faster. Like, my parents are professors. When I was in graduate school, like, they were things I understood just from having been around it. These dudes aren't actually any better at it. So they're not hiring people who are actually good at it and willfully trying not to, from what it seems to be, hire people that might actually make your team better because the biggest winners from hiring more black coaches will ultimately be the white people who get better coaches because they've opened up the pool of people that they deal with and they still don't want it. But that's the story of American racism. It is in spite of good sense and even in spite of your potential to profit. That is going to have to be the last word on this segment, and it is a good one. Bomani Jones, Michael Harriet, Jason Johnson will be back in a little bit. Thank you all very much. Up next on The Readout, breaking news in the Trump investigations. Trump's accounting firm has cut ties with him and retracted the financial statements it prepared for his company. Why they've got to be nervous at Mar-a-Lago tonight. Plus, suburban women are fighting back against book banning and hostility toward the teaching of honest American history in our schools. The organizer of that effort is, to, is tonight's readout Democracy Defender. And the companies owned by tonight's absolute worst are accused of being unfit for man or beast. The readout continues after this.
In breaking news just hours ago, New York's Attorney General Letitia James revealed in a court filing that Donald Trump's accounting firm, Mazars USA, has officially fired their longtime client. As The New York Times reports, the accounting firm notified the Trump organization of its decision and disclosed that it could no longer stand between annual financial statements it prepared for Mr. Trump. The letter instructed the Trump organization to essentially retract the documents known as statements of financial condition from 2011 through 2020. In other words, Trump's own accountants can no longer attest that his financial statements are accurate. And those statements are at the center of two investigations into whether Trump fraudulently inflated his assets to secure favorable loans. It's a significant blow to Trump, who has long relied on Mazar's credibility to claim that his finances are beyond reproach. They're done by among the biggest and best law firms in the country. Same thing with the accounting firms. The accountants are a very, very large, powerful firm from the standpoint of respect, highly respected. Joining me now, Tim O'Brien, senior columnist at Bloomberg Opinion, and Paul Butler, professor at Georgetown Law School and former federal prosecutor. Thank you both for being here. Tim, I'm going to start with you. What is the significance? I mean, you know, it isn't a good thing to have your uh, accountant quit you, but what does this mean big picture for Donald Trump and his company? Well, the, the immediate impact, Joy, is Donald Trump had hundreds of millions of dollars he needs to refinance hanging over his business empire. And good luck refinancing your debt when the accountants just walked out the door. That is going to give anybody else who has to would consider lending money to Donald Trump enormous pause. In fact, they may not even be able to do it because of this. So the practical you know, implications of this is his business is going to get radically squeezed because of it. Uh, on a national security front, it, it presents the same issue it's always presented. If Donald Trump is desperate for money, to refinance struggling, um, his struggling business, that makes him a mark for foreign lenders. And uh, I think this has to be watched very carefully. Jared Kushner is making the rounds right now in the Middle East to raise money for his own um, business ventures. Uh, and I think people have to really pay attention to who Donald Trump is going to go begging to uh, for money as this progresses. Um, the other piece of it that I just find, is, which is a head scratcher, is that suddenly Mazars, because of Letitia James's filing, decided they could no longer vouch for these financial statements. These are the same financial statements that were in the center of the litigation I engaged with in Don with Donald Trump in. Um, he claimed he lied about it, but he claimed he gave me these documents when I was reporting. They turned up in my deposition. I looked through all of them for the first time during my deposition with Trump's legal team. And Mazars at the time said, we cannot certify these under GAAP, generally accepted accounting practices. That's a sniff test accountants use to make sure something is kosher, that it corresponds with the profession's um, standards for what should be reported publicly. Mazars knew in 2006 and 2007 that something wasn't completely up to snuff. I think the difference was I was a journalist. Mazars now is looking at the fact that the New York State Attorney General is raising the same questions. That they said that, the, that what came out in her court filings in January prompted them to withdraw. What came out in her court filings was ample evidence that Donald Trump has been and his children and the Trump Organization has been inflating the value of his assets. 
and messing with the value of his assets, possibly misleading investors and bankers, possibly misleading tax authorities. Mazar stares that in the face and I think says, uh-oh, we have possible criminal or civil exposure here and we have to do something about it. Mm. So now we're going to walk. It's interesting because Mazars is the, the same company, Paul, that they, they went all the way to the Supreme Court, right? There was a case that went all the way to the Supreme Court about whether or not they would be willing to turn over his records. And this was to the New York district attorney. They lost that case. The Supreme Court ruled he, that they cannot, you know, they cannot block those records from being released. Now, that didn't have anything to do with the January 6th committee. This was specifically for that. Uh, Congress is actually still fighting to see those returns. Is that the case here, that Mazars perhaps realizes that, A, they may have legal liability themselves, that's number one, and number two, could they or their accountants be called to testify against Trump if a case ever came to trial? Uh, I think they almost certainly will be called to testify. This is a big deal, Joy. The accounting firm that is represented for Trump for years has said, we're quitting you and you need to alert your banks and insurers and everybody else that the statements we've issued about your finances for the past 10 years are unreliable. The accounting firm says it can't reveal why it's dropping Trump and his business, but it also says it made this decision based on information it received from court documents filed by Letitia James and from its own investigation and its own internal and external um, sources. When an accounting firm prepares these statements of financial condition, it doesn't conduct an independent audit or investigation to see if the information that the client has provided is correct. So the accounting work is only as reliable as the client, which in Trump's case makes you wonder why it took them so long to figure out that Hmm. Trump is shaped with both money and the truth. You know, it's interesting. So, you know, Trump, um, Tim, has been on like a, a fire sale, right? They're selling, you know, the MAGA hats have gone from, you know, $44 <laughs> to $104. They're they're hawking everything. I mean, even Melania Trump is in on it. There's some dubious sort of, you know, it's it's for charity, but the charities don't seem to exist. You know, it, we just put up on screen a few of the things he's selling. He did an arena tour with Bill O'Reilly. The tickets were between $100 and $7,500. Signed coffee table books, stuff stamped with the, you know, what looks like the official seal sort of of the president. You know, it, it is it is like a fire sale. He's he seems to be really desperately trying to raise money, even things that look like political fundraising really just go in his pocket. What does that say to you that he's on this money hunt? Is this just the way he is? Or could this be a sign that he's, you know, stocking up because he feels he might need a lot of cash anytime soon? It's both of those things, Joy. He, this is just the way he is. Donald Trump has put his name on underwear, mattresses, steaks, water, magazines, you name it. Anything that he can try to get cash from, he'll do. If you've got a bag of cash, Donald, Donald Trump will talk to you. Um, he also, I think, is under financial pressure, and, and he is going to have to sell a lot of MAGA hats to be able to pay, pay down $400 million in short-term debt that's coming due in the next few years that he needs to refinance and perhaps well over a billion. This stuff is 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 really um, small change and it's not going to get him there. I, I think this is, 
him monetizing his political standing. It's him taking advantage of our loose uh, campaign finance laws so he can line his pockets. This kind of stuff, though, isn't going to solve the problems he has. He's selling his hotel in Washington to deal yeah. with the kind of debt problems he has. He's moved from New York to Florida, I think, for a variety of reasons, part of its financial. And I think I think the fact that now that his accountants have decided to leave uh, is yet another indicating indication of of what a mess he, his children, and his company have on their hands financially. Yeah, I mean, and, and just to clarify, by selling his hotel, meaning selling the lease on the hotel he leases from us, from the United States, from the federal from government, us, from which the is taxpayers. still, I can't believe that's legal. Yes. From the taxpayers, it's hard to believe that's even legal. So, so Paul, I guess the, the question that, you know, every time a story like this comes up, I know I annoy my producers with the question, and I don't know if anybody that's watching has the same question. There's a bit of a, okay, so what? Because it does seem like this guy has nine lives, that he's, you know, from just a lay person's point of view, appears to break the law all the time when it comes to paying his, not paying his taxes or, you know, levering the value, uh, uh, you know, to insurance companies of his properties. All of this reporting happens, all of these disclosures happen, and then nothing happens. What, what could be shielding him from accountability? If any of us sitting here did a tenth of this stuff, I feel like we'd be in really big legal trouble, not in the future, but now. Any of us would be in big legal trouble if Letitia James is on the case as she is with Trump. She shut down his charitable organization, and now she's looking at his businesses. And Trump, of course, has been crying witch hunt and playing the race card, claiming that these investigations are due to black prosecutors like the New York Attorney General James and like the Manhattan DA Greg, who he claims are racist. But now his own accountant has the same concerns about whether Trump and his company are on the up and up. It makes it look like those prosecutors are on the right track. All right. Well, drip, drip, drip. We just keep getting more and more information. We'll see where it goes. Tim O'Brien, Paul Butler, thank you both very much. And up next, celebrating another readout democracy defender. Katie Paris is organizing suburban women to counter the right's rhetoric on everything from school mask mandates to diversity education. Stay with us. are now 267 days away from the midterm elections. And today, in-person voting began in Texas ahead of its first in the nation primary just two weeks from tomorrow. So please register and vote. As Democrats try to keep control of both chambers of Congress, Republicans have made it clear that their strategy across the country is to focus on the classroom culture wars. They saw how Glenn Youngkin joined in on right-wing organizations' plan to use conservative parents' dislike of Toni Morrison's and other books by black authors to generate enough agitation among white suburban voters to eke out a win in Virginia last November. And now Republicans are replicating his playbook in Wisconsin, where they're trying to unseat Democratic Governor Tony Evers. We've all seen the videos of school board meetings looking more like a WWE ring where with both verbal and physical threats of violence over mask mandates and school curriculums on race, racial history and sexuality, followed by attempts to ban books that teach those topics from school classrooms and from libraries. But while the book banners may be loud, they are not the only ones making their voices heard. 
thanks to democracy defenders like Katie Paris and her group Red, White, and Blue. It's a national network of multiracial suburban women, especially moms, who are mobilizing to counter those disruptive astroturf groups. Among its activities, running training sessions to help women learn strategies to fight back while presenting a calm face and peaceful demeanor. In just a few years since the group's founding, its network reaches more than 300,000 women. And joining me now is our Readout Democracy Defender today, Katie Paris, founder of Red, White, Red Wine and Blue. You had me at wine. Thank you for being here. Um, talk about the origin of this name. You know, I started Red Wine and Blue following the 2018 elections when the big story coming out of those elections was suburban women becoming more politically engaged. And I live in Ohio, and it just didn't happen here quite as much. And I wanted to know why. And so I started traveling around the state. And much to my surprise, and it was a good surprise, I found women meeting in living rooms, usually with a glass or two of wine, getting together and saying, you know what, I'm feeling kind of alone in my community, but does anyone else feel like something's really wrong here since the election of Donald Trump? And they started working together, getting stuff done together, and even helping each other get elected to offices like city council and school board. And so I thought, these women are not your typical political activists. We need to amplify their voices. We need to connect them together. Their networks are not politically polarized. They live in areas that have been more traditionally Republican and conservative, but they're turning away from that. And wow, if we could bring them all together, that's a lot of power. Let me show you um, just a, a little bit of a sample of kind of the way some of these school boards have begun to look. And, you know, again, I always like to emphasize to people, this is not just, you know, coming up from the grassroots. These are AstroTurf organizations that are that are putting a lot of money into organizing this. And these are small groups of people, but very disruptive. Here's a sample. We should take our kids and we should pull them out of school. Touch me. Hey, hey, hey. Whoa, whoa, guys, come on, come on. Hey, officers, officers, please come to the room. We know who you are. We know who you are. We know who you are. You can leave freely, but we will find you, and we know who you are. I mean, some of those are real jet threats. I mean, what do you counsel women who are part of Red Wine and Blue to do if they find themselves in a situation like that? Yes. So as you can imagine, when women see images like that and you say, so, hey, how about come down to the next school board meeting? That right. might not sound like something they immediately want to do, right? So we need to change. We need to flip the script. We need to put this on terms where our women can feel really proud and comfortable showing up together. And that means that they're going to show up differently. So we have created a community where women can come together, support each other, share best practices. You know, what's going to happen at these meetings? Where can we all meet beforehand? How early should we show up? Where can we find information about how many of us can show up at what time? So how many speakers do we need to have? What should we be, what should we expect to hear? Let's make sure that we're, we're there booing and shouting and pushing. We can stand together. Maybe I'll wear the same color, have, you know, the masks on them that say keep schools open or some positive message. And when we speak, let's, let's politely and cheerfully applaud each other. Or if they're not allowing applause, you know, let's show some other form of positivity. And it's that contrast that we're going for because, you know, there's a lot of parents that are just kind of looking in on this on the sidelines going, 
what is even happening? And we want to present a contrast and show, you know, it doesn't have to be like that. Those of us who are just mainstream moms, we want to set a good example for our kids. And we don't want this Fox News right-wing think tank idea of what parents showing up at school boards are to to set the narrative. We want to take that into our own hands. And, and, you know, this whole conversation, I'm glad you mentioned narrative, because, you know, the sort of narrative, and and the media is guilty of this, of saying suburban, right? Which generally means white suburban moms. Let's just be blunt. But I I know, having grown up in the suburbs, a very black suburb in Denver, Colorado, that the suburbs are not all white, right? You have a lot of um, gentrification is pushing a lot of people who did live downtown into the suburbs. The suburbs are getting increasingly, you have a lot of people of color who are becoming affluent enough to buy into the suburbs. So these suburbs are much more mixed race. And so are the schools. Let me just put these numbers up. Schools used to be in 2009, 54% white, um, the children, I mean. They're now 47% white. They are 15% black, slightly down. It's the Latino student population that's really the growing population. How does your group and does your group deal with that? And how do you deal with the fact that the whole idea of a suburban mom is a lot different now than the way that the media tends to portray it? Well, the media can say what they will, but we are going to be here every day accurately representing ourselves. And we hope that the way the media talks about it does eventually change because the suburbs are diverse and that's really good news. I mean, that's part of why most of us actually like living in the suburbs. We like living sort of nearby to cities where there's a lot of culture. We like that not everybody is exactly the same. We're not living in perfect houses with picket fences. We are not you know, suburban housewives from the 1950s, you know, as Donald Trump referred to us. And so we are going to represent ourselves in a way that is consistent with our values and accurately represents who we are. It's something we talk about a lot. Democracy Defender Katie Paris, thank you very much. Really appreciate you. Red, wine, and blue. That's one of the best names that anybody's come up with for a group, too. So thank you very much. Appreciate it. Don't go anywhere. Tonight's Absolute Worst is up next as we learn more about allegations of rampant and really, quite frankly, shockingly open racial discrimination at a high-tech California car maker. We'll be right back. There are an abundance of reasons to critique Tesla founder Elon Musk. There's his participation in the midlife crisis space race with all the other bored billionaires obsessed with escaping the planet as it burns. And while his company is leading the country in producing electric vehicles, he came out against Build Back Better, which would fund creating more charging stations and possibly the country's best chance to save the planet because he's worried about the deficit. This coming from a man who paid, uh, let's see, check notes. Oh, exactly zero in federal income taxes. In 2018, he also spoke out against government subsidies, despite his company receiving billions from them. His neurotechnology company is currently being accused of killing and causing extreme suffering in monkeys during brain experiments. Plus, he has a past of ugly union busting at Tesla. And today we're learning a lot more about the treatment of his employees. The California Department of Fair Employment and Housing is suing Tesla, alleging in a statement that after receiving hundreds of complaints from workers and a nearly three year investigation, the department found evidence that Tesla operates a racially segregated workplace where black workers are subjected to racial slurs and discriminated against in job assignments, discipline, pay and promotion. The lawsuit details horrific treatment of black employees, citing complaints that workers referred to the areas where many black and or African-Americans worked as the porch monkey station and the dark side, as well as the slave ship or the plantation where defendants production leads cracked the whip. 
Workers have stated that Tesla production lead supervisors and managers constantly use the N-word and other racial slurs to refer to black workers. And the state found that Tesla ignored, immediately dismissed, or perfunctorily investigated and then dismissed workers' complaints and that management retaliated against black workers for complaining. Tesla, Tesla denies the allegation, saying the department has, quote, no factual proof and that Tesla strongly opposes all forms of discrimination and harassment. But this is far from the first time that Tesla has been accused of racism, with Elon Musk responding to a previous allegation in an extremely tone-deaf way in 2017, telling employees that anyone who makes an unintentional slur should just apologize and the recipient should be thick-skinned and accept the apology. Right, just be thick-skinned and take the racism. Welcome to America as tech bro hell. So for all of the above, Elon Musk is tonight's absolute worst. And up next, there is a lot more on this lawsuit and the many past allegations against Tesla. We will speak to a lawyer who's currently fighting a class action suit against the company on behalf of 1,000 of its black workers. Stay with us. If you take the time to read the 39-page complaint filed on behalf of Tesla's black employees, you would be horrified. Tesla production associates and supervisors are accused of regularly calling employees the N-word. And when faced with complaints about the racist environment, some supervisors allegedly use their own racist language and retaliatory tactics. Now, mind you, this is not the first time Elon Musk and his company have had to address these claims of rampant racism and discrimination in the workplace. Last August, the company paid a former employee, Melvin Berry, $1 million after an arbitrator found that Tesla turned a blind eye to the commonplace use of racist slurs and failed to stop the employee's supervisors from calling him the N-word. The arbitrator found Barry's allegations more credible than Tesla's denials. Arbitration is what companies like to use to keep things hush-hush and on friendlier terms. And then in October, a federal jury in San Francisco awarded Owen Diaz, a black elevator operator, $137 million after they found his claims that a colleague repeatedly called him the N-word to be credible. The environment has reportedly been so toxic for so long that a class action lawsuit was filed back in 2017 against the company on behalf of 1,000 black workers. And joining me now is Larry Organ, founder of the California Civil Rights Law Group. He's a lawyer in all three cases that I just mentioned. And Jason Johnson is back with us. Um, I think for a lot of people, um, and thank you so much for being here, Mr. Organ, it's shocking to here that this seems to be an extremely open environment of both racism and retaliation. Walk us through what your clients were going through and tell us what the specifics of the retaliation looked like. Sure. So in, in terms of Owen Diaz um, and Melvin Berry, they, they, they heard the N-word from uh, the get-go whenever they were walking around the factory um, but Owen had it directed at him over 60 times by two of his supervisors. There was racist graffiti, including the N-word, swastikas, and other things in the bathrooms uh, that, that he saw as of the second day of his employment there. He complained numerous times uh, verbally and in writing, and uh, Tesla uh, took some perfunctory uh, analysis, but uh, they didn't do full investigations. They just didn't do the things that employers are supposed to do if you want to stop this. And most importantly, what really makes me mad is this statement about the thick skin by Elon Musk. If he had gone into that factory, you know, this is a guy who said, oh, I sleep on the factory floor. If he had gone in from day one and said, you know, 
I heard there's the N-word here. If you say the N-word, we're going to fire you. And then Tesla follows up and fires them. It stops there. But that hasn't happened. And that's what's yeah. so infuriating is that thousands of black workers have been called the N-word, subjected to all kinds of racist taunts um, and uh, retaliation, as you pointed out in the DFEH complaint. Um, and, and nothing is done to stop it. So uh, very, very disappointing. And, and, you know, Jason, there's like a, there's a bit of this sort of tech bro culture thing that I think yeah. is happening here, too. So just some of it to go very quickly. Um, Tesla refused to attend mediation at one point when DFEH wanted them to attend. Um, they were like, no, we're not going to do it. Um, the, 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 the same department found that black workers were being taunted, as we just heard. Um, and then when they complained, they were said, well, they're aggressive. They're threatening. They would get in trouble. They would be accused of coming in late and saying, oh, we're going to you know use that to sort of deny you opportunity. I mean, literally, it seems that the, the culture inside of Tesla was suck it up. And if you say anything, we're going to retaliate against you. And here's the other thing, Joy. It's like Tesla, he, Elon Musk has this image of himself. He's like, I'm the real Tony Stark. No, he's, he's more <laughs> he's more Dr. Doom, right? He's, he's more vicious and mean and bullying. Because here's the thing. You hear about this with Tesla. Do you think somebody could get away with this at Ford? Do you think Absolutely somebody could not. get away with this at Honda? No. The people who are there know I can act the fool in this particular environment. And when it goes up the ladder, nothing is going to happen to me. Some of these complaints are ridiculous. I mean, for someone to have swastikas and KKK in a break room, and it takes months for it to be scrubbed down, allegedly, mm -hmm. for someone to be called the n-word multiple times so much that they can count you don't say i got called the n-word 60 times if you right. are counting past 23 or 24 so all of this really falls into his lap and he has made it clear that as much as he wants to present himself as this cool guy he is perfectly comfortable with a hostile work environment you know and then now they're moving to texas uh mr Oregon. so talk about that because you know i guess it could be seen by some as an attempt to escape accountability by getting out of the state of california where he's facing this pretty uh, aggressive lawsuit to what he might believe is a more permissive environment. What, what are your thoughts on that? Well, you know, Owen's case uh, uh, was brought under uh, the Civil Rights Act of uh, 1866. So he may run to Texas, but he can't hide from the federal statute that found him guilty here. So um, I, I think that uh, jurors in Texas are not going to be sympathetic to uh, Musk's BS, and hopefully they will stand up to any kind of racism there. But I do think that the timing is uh, sort of ironic. Three days after Mr. Diaz got his $137 million verdict, he moves away to Texas. Uh, yeah. Kind of chicken, if you ask me. But It, it could be. T Tesla's response, by the way, to the class action lawsuit back in 2017, attacking you. It said at Tesla, we would rather pay 10 times the settlement demand in legal fees and fight to the ends of the earth than give in to extortion and allow this abuse of the legal system. That was their response to you, Mr. Oregon. Your thoughts? Well, uh, I, I'd rather be called an extortionist by Elon Musk for standing up for African-American workers uh, than maybe anything else. I wear that as a badge of honor. So uh, yeah. bring it on, Elon. No one here is scared of you. You know, me and my co-counsel, Brian Schwartz, we're all we're fighting you in that class action. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, my, my other uh, my co-counsel in the Diaz trial, he filed another case against uh, e Elon. Um, so Bernard uh, Alexander is his name. So, you know, yeah, we're not scared. And, Bring you know, it, right? <laughs> it's kind of it's yeah, I know it's it's uh, it's a sad thing. But um, yeah. I think because he has so much money and because Tesla is such a wealthy company, they think they they're above the law. 
And yeah. uh, the one great thing about America is the jury system, uh, as our founders um, uh, decided, is a check on power. And this is yeah. a check on uh, Elon Indeed. Musk. And, and quickly, Jason, because we are in this culture where states like Florida are trying to do these anti-woke act things, yeah. which would literally prohibit a company like Tesla from even trying to fix it. Because this idea is that the problem is people complaining about racism, right. not racism. Right, exactly. You know, I, I'm, I'm struck, Joy, honestly, by like, do you know how much the abuse has to be for a door person to get $137 million? Hello? Like $137 million. Like what, is, this, is this Calvin Candy or like forcing black people to fight? Like how gross environment this is. But it is something to be concerned about when you have these states that basically want to become safe havens for racism, right? right? They're going to say, oh, we're attractive not just to business because of low taxes, but also we won't tax you for bigotry. We won't talk to you. We haven't even talked about the sexism issue Mm -hmm. that they've also had at Tesla. So that is something that should be a concern. He should not be able to basically state hop in order to engage in the kind of abuse, alleged abuse, that this company's been engaged in. Yeah, and unfortunately, as you said, there are states that are trying to set themselves up, a.k.a. free state of Florida, and saying, bring that here. Yeah. We're okay with that here. And that is sad because there are people there who deserve to be treated better as well. Larry Organ, Jason Johnson, thank you both very much. That's tonight's readout.